You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. What is going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas This Week podcast. You're listening to episode 197. We're getting close to that 200 mark, Mark. Yep. Mark, Mark. That was Mark, Mark. intended. <laughs> yeah, we got something special planned for our 200th episode. Hopefully, this coronavirus thing doesn't keep us from getting together. Because if it does, we'll push it out so everybody can get together. But just stay tuned. We got some cool stuff going on. And then, Jake, you know how much we love our sponsors? A whole bunch. A whole bunch. And so we've been very lucky here at OGG, and we just picked up some new sponsors. So big shout out to our existing sponsors, IBM, Tightwater, Baker Hughes, Nutanix. But our new sponsors are really cool, too. So we just picked up Amazon, Technique FMC, The Well Boss, Indris Hauser, Saxum, and Dragger. So big shout out to all the, our new sponsors coming on. Some of them are picking up some of our older shows, and some of them are actually starting their own shows. So stay tuned, audience. we got whole bunch of stuff coming in the next month. Busy as hell. But this is a first Friday Q&A, although it's not actually Friday. Let's get into questions. Actually, before we get into questions, let's do the review, Jake. Yes, we got a review from our good buddy, David Ramsenwood. As a lot of you know him, he's become quite notorious on LinkedIn over the past year. He writes, love what Mark and Jake are doing and have done for getting the voice of the industry out on the airways for professionals and amateurs alike. Keep up the great work. Love you guys, DRW. Oh, love, love and hugs, DRW. <laughs> Yeah, he's not controversial at all. No, not not one bit. He's just like Richard. just like boring and like stays in the center <laughs> lane and you know that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah, go check him out. He also just released a book too, and he's definitely sold more than six hundred copies. So he's got a podcast, a new book, and all that kind of stuff. So go check him out. He's a good friend of the show. Yeah, and I was joking, people. He is very controversial. I actually love that very much. Speaking the truth about what's going on and what needs to change. So go listen to his podcast. It's actually really good. All right, let's get right into the questions. You guys know the drill. You guys write in questions. We try to answer them, and hopefully you don't try to stump us or ask if we're single again. So first question up is from Stephen, who's a senior industry analyst at Nowco Champion. Writes, love the podcast. Always look forward to a new episode. Keep up the good work. I've got two questions. Question one, U.S. and Canada have a public data set in FRAC Focus. Is there a public data set for offshore completions? The only one that I know of in the U.S., and, and even our Canadian listeners, please chime in because I don't know how it's done in Canada, but the only one I know here in the U.S. is Bessie. B, so go to bsee.com, and they have a huge data center of all the stuff that's going offshore, and you can query by all kinds of different methods. The website itself is kind of dated the way it looks and the way it runs, but it's a full of a wealth of information. So that's the only one I know of. Yeah, and I'm, I don't have a ton of offshore experience, <laughs> and most of my work has been onshore, particularly in the upstream, and so I don't know of any, but I would love to know if anybody knows of one. Please write in, let us know, and we'll let the listeners know. Second question from Stephen is, for the completion chemical segment in oil and gas, it seems more operators are debundling, i.e. buying chemicals direct from the chemical manufacturer instead of bundling chemical packages provided by the service company. Is this going to be the trend moving forward or will it be an about face and the operators will go back to the bundled model? What are the positives and negatives of both? Ooh, that's a bunch of questions in there. So let me let me just say what I've seen going on in the last, say the last 10 years. So it used to be that all the chemicals, not just things for completion, but all the oil and gas chemicals were bought through the service companies. And the reason they did that, number one, it was easy to write one PO instead of two. Number two, if the chemicals weren't what they were supposed to be, the service company was on the hook, not the manufacturer. And then the Chinese entered the market and they dumped a bunch of low cost chemicals on the market. And in the very beginning, they were 
a lot of them were quality stuff, but then of course the quality declined. And what happened is you thought you're buying X and you're, and what you actually got was X minus half. And so now it's back to at least here in North America where people are buying chemicals through the manufacturers. It's sort of like what Sam Walton realized. So Sam Walton's genius wasn't in building a whole bunch of retail Walmart stores. What Sam Walton's genius was, he figured out that back then the distributors are the ones making all the money. So if you wanted to buy, say, Tide laundry soap, Tide manufactured it back then. Then they sent it to a big distributor who then sold it to the retail outlets. And what Sam Walton figured out is the logistics is where the money made. So he got rid of the distributor. He got middle, rid of the middleman and Tide then shipped his laundry detergent straight to the stores. And he had a bunch of technology in place to make sure that was efficient way to run things. And that's what you're seeing right now in oil and gas and chemicals. You're seeing that the operators have figured out if they skip the middleman, the distributor or the service company, they get stuff much cheaper. Now, what I think is going to happen is as we continue down this road of more and more technology coming in, especially in upstream, I think you could see the service companies bundle things like chemicals along with their technology, along with their services. So I think you could see the model swing in a big circle in about two years. And I think in about two years from now, in North America, in upstream, you'll see the chemicals come back to being predominantly delivered by the service companies. But right now, it's all about getting rid of that middleman and lowering the cost of your operations. I've actually seen a one chemical provider in particular, Geochemica. We had them on the oil and gas startup show, I don't know, like six months ago. But one thing that they provided was not only do they have like this, this van that comes out and they, and they do all the chemicals, do all the work, but they also provide you analytics on top of that of actually what is working, what is not yep. working. And so I see more and more of that, of, of companies becoming more of data analytics companies on top of you know traditionally pretty analog businesses and places where there really hasn't been a whole lot of structured data before. I know that it doesn't really answer the question from my point of view, but I, that's where I see things going. No, you're exactly right, Jake. So what's going to happen? What I think is going to happen is in a few years, those chemicals will be able to be tweaked per operator, per well, per completion portfolio. So the only you're not going to get that type of on-demand changing of the formula a little bit from the manufacturer who right now just manufactures it bulk. I think it's in a few years to come back to your point because of technology and the people that are actually delivered will be the service companies, but they'll be able to tweak those chemical compositions to drive efficiency. I think it's just, that's just right around the corner. Absolutely. Next question is from Tom who's a mud logger at Schlumberger. <laughs> Come on, Jake. <laughs> First, I just want to say how good of a job you guys are both doing on this podcast. It's extremely informative and has been a great resource for someone like myself who has just started in the industry. Well, thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. My question is about the economics of petrochemicals in today's market. I recently read that ExxonMobil have reported a drop in profits for the fourth quarter, seeing that profit margins for refining and petrochemicals have deteriorated. I was just under the impression that with cheap oil and gas prices, petrochemical production would should be booming with the larger profit margins. Can you guys explain why this isn't the case or if I'm getting the wrong end of the stick? So, no, you're absolutely right. So, of course, ExxonMobil as a corporation has dropped in profits for a bunch of reasons, the same reasons a lot of other companies are suffering. But back in 2016, when everybody was suffering from low crude prices, ExxonMobil's petrochemical division was booming. In fact, their international petrochemical division in that year grew 100% in revenue year over year. And if you're as big as ExxonMobil and a piece of your business grows 100%, that's that unicorn, right? That's that once-in-a-lifetime type of thing. What's happening is because the low crude and natural gas prices have continued that the petrochemical market 
has boomed. Here in the Gulf Coast, we've spent almost $100 billion in new petrochemical plants, including things like ethylene crackers. And the same thing's happening across the U.S. and across the world, actually. So the reason you're seeing this drop in petrochemical margins is because so many new players have entered the market. You know, the people that got it right back in 20, say 12, 2013, and either grew their petrochemical plants or new built new ones or stood up ethylene crackers made a ton of profits. And because they were making a ton of profits, more people entered. Like you see, it's always supply and demand. And now you're starting to see those margins be squeezed because there's so much more competition out there. But the bottom line is the petrochemical part of the oil and gas industry is growing. It will continue to grow and it will continue to grow into the world's population levels out, which is another whole story in itself. But you got the story exactly right. You read the article, they, they go into detail about how Exxon as a whole, their upstream operations, their pipeline operations has suffered and their petrochemicals, which saved them back in 2016, 2017, isn't as profitable as it used to be. And it's not as profitable as it used to be because they have more competition. Absolutely. Petrochemicals is not my space. So Mark knows that much better than I have. So next question is from James, who's a student. He writes, thank you for the very informative podcast. I've been listening for quite some time after deciding to go into petroleum engineering. I'm now in my second year and I like it a lot. However, I see the world is changing away from oil and I'm tempted to move on to a different major. Is that a good idea or not? I'm not sure. Can you tell me what to do if you were starting out at this time? So we've covered this one a lot, especially, I mean, really since the beginning, but I feel like more particularly over the last like six months or so. Obviously, we're in a transitional phase for oil and gas, particularly upstream, particularly on shale. It's a tough time, I think, especially with the overreaction to coronavirus and the implications that has for the global markets, along with the news, which we totally forgot to talk about in the beginning, of OPEC has not reached an agreement on any of the production cuts. And so it seems that everybody is posturing, saying that they're all going to just open the floodgates and just completely swamp the world with, with an oversupply of crude. And so everybody's speculating that oil prices are going to drive down to below 30s, like we saw in 15, or maybe even lower than that. Whether that's actually going to happen or not, I don't particularly know. If that does happen, that's bad news for a lot of people. It's a lot of a lot of people are going to be out of jobs, unfortunately, and a lot of them are going to be engineers. So I would say in the event that that does happen, I think you're kind of vulnerable by completely pigeonholing yourself into petroleum engineering. One of the things that we've talked about a lot in the past is that I know a lot of mechanical engineers that are petroleum engineers. I know a lot of mechanical engineers who are software engineers. I know a lot of mechanical engineers who are civil or anything else. And so that's my personal advice is you're able to hedge yourself against the cyclical nature of this business. You can never predict commodity prices. But in addition to that, like we've said a million times, the thing is to also broaden your skill set and learn a little bit of data science and learning how to code. And that's going to be extremely viable. I have a good friend who actually was a petroleum engineer, went really, really heavy on the data science side, got put in charge of a data science project at a very large operator here in the U.S. He fell so in love with the data science side of things and wanted to do more of that and actually went off to work at a grocery store, essentially, but not actually you know, stocking shelves or anything, but actually on the data science side. And so I've seen a lot more of that. And that's not to be pessimistic towards our industry. And that's not to say you shouldn't come into the industry because there's a lot of opportunity. But I think you should hedge yourself against the cyclical nature of the business and some of the geopolitical implications that you can't control. I like how you took the poor student James question, threw in the <laughs> OPEC thing, and probably scared the bejeebies out of him and his entire class. They're all switching to home ec majors right now. I know. So, so James, I agree with everything that Jake said, but because of this negative public perception, 
there's already a shortage of petroleum engineers and your second year in school, which means you could get out in two years. I think when you get out, there's going to be such a shortage of petroleum engineers, you could have 20 job offers waiting for you when you get out. But Jake is right in that especially petroleum engineering is very niched. It's It tends to be only upstream, only when times are good are they hiring petroleum engineers. Now, I will say this much. Last time I checked, it was one of the highest paid jobs out of school, I Just, but that means you have to go get a job. So I agree that you need to hedge that with something else that is not related to hydrocarbons data science is always great same way to learn how to sling some code but the other thing is and it's it's interesting so jake talked a little bit about opec hasn't come to agreement yet russia's saying they don't care they're gonna flood the market i think it's a bunch of political posturing anytime you're negotiating contracts of that scale that's in the news you're going to posture to try to sway the other side i don't think it's either good for opec or for russia to have the 30 dollars a barrel for oil i think they both know that but regardless the upstream part of our industry cycles back and forth. If you have something else that makes you valuable, it's great. But one thing you said in your note to us that, that I want to talk about a little bit is that the world is changing and moving away from oil. That's not true. It's really interesting. So you would believe that. And if you look at like all the automobile manufacturers, I just recently finished car shopping. I bought, picked up two vehicles and I shopped for a few months. And Jake, do you know how many electric vehicles I saw on dealers' lots? A whole bunch. I was actually listening no. to a podcast. Really? No. So I'm, now, now remember, this is just in Houston, right? This is just the place I was looking. But of all the lots I went to, the only lot that had electric vehicles on the lot that you could go test drive was Honda. Everybody else said they had them. Everybody said they were coming, but there weren't any on the lots. And it was really interesting to me to, to look at the buzz. Now, a perfect example. I bought two Infinities. Well, about six years ago, Infinity Corporation, who's owned by Nissan, said that by year 2020, half of their vehicles are going to be electric. Well, Jake, I bought two Infinities and, the, and Nissan, I mean, Infinity doesn't have a single electric vehicle on the lot. They have some hybrids, but no electric vehicles. So it's really interesting to watch what the public, especially the automobile manufacturers are saying. You know, have GM made that big announcement they can come out with an electric Hummer, and I'm, I'm sure they will, which I'm sure is going to be really cool. But it's a different than what people are actually buying. And the demand for hydrocarbons goes up every year. The thing that gets kind of squirrely is how much does it go up? So this coronavirus is causing a slowdown in manufacturing in China, which is causing a slowdown in demand for hydrocarbons. But the demand is still there and it's still going up. Now, it's not going up four or 5% like we like it. It's going up like 0.002%. I'm not real worried about hydrocarbons disappearing. What I am worried about is public perception making it harder and harder for, for our industry to make profits. So it's, it's, you know, I would not be worried at all about James, about graduate petroleum engineer. If you have something else to fall back on something that's not petroleum related, just understand that when you get out in two years, the upstream part of our industry is going to be a totally different industry than it is now, but we still need petroleum engineers and we'll always need petroleum engineers. Absolutely. So you got a little bit of that, little bit of the optimistic side, a little bit of the pessimistic side, but regardless, I think we're just keeping it real. Next question is from Michael, who is also a student. He writes, hey, Mark and Jake, first off, huge fan of the podcast. I'm a current political science major that is set to graduate in May. I believe as a political science major, I possess a unique understanding of how geopolitical conflicts affect the global markets in regard to energy demand and supply. I believe I can bring value to companies through this, but believe I do lack the financial knowledge typically desired for entry-level positions. Do you have any recommendations on a career or education path to get my foot in the door with the industry? 
You know, Jake, let me answer this first real quick. So first thing, Michael, I wouldn't worry about the financial acronym. Believe it or not, that is a pretty common skill set. The geopolitical part is not a pretty common skill set. So if I was you, I'd be banging on the big consulting doors, the Ernest & Young's, the KPMG's, the McKinsey's. They all have geopolitical practices internally to help their oil and gas clients. And if you can just get in the door of one of those companies and start learning the nuts and bolts of how global geopolitics affects the oil and gas industry, I think you're after a couple of years, you're going to have a skill set and experience set that very, very few people have. The financial acronym is important, but there's way more people that understand the dollars and cents part of oil and gas that understands the geopolitics. Even, even some very senior people in our industry, even you know some executive VPs and directors of some of the largest super majors out there don't really understand the geopolitics. And it's a hard thing to get your hands around just because it, it varies so much between country and country. So I really think you're better off concentrating on your geopolitical background, get some work experience with one of the big consulting companies, and then really the sky's the limit. You could work for a super major, you could start your own consulting company. You know, I would definitely concentrate on the geopolitical part of what you're doing right now. Yeah, I agree 100%. I think consulting is a great thing to get into. Like Mark said, you know, all these big consulting firms have a huge geopolitical and economical component to their business. And plus, you can make a lot of good money too. And from what I hear, people who really enjoy consulting, one thing they like to say about it is that, you know, you're doing new projects all the time. And so it's not necessarily the same thing over and over again. So something to look into. Obviously, those are not companies that are easy to get into. And I think kind of where you go to school plays a big part in that, unfortunately. So, but just something to look into. I think your future is bright. Up next, we have a question from an anonymous chef employee. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> I would say, Mark and Jake, I wanted to share with oil and gas this week something encouraging. The executive vice president of technology, projects, and services directly under the CEO in an upstream town hall today was asked about why Chevron is not quickly transitioning to green energy. Clearly and unequivocally stated that the world will need oil and gas for the foreseeable future and that the worldwide economy cannot run without it. He elaborated for a solid two or three minutes. It was very encouraging because in my experience, even in this company, there are many people who don't seem to understand the importance of our industry. I wish this dialogue could have been put on YouTube. Freaking love this. And Chevron, don't go try to figure out who Anonymous is. This, this is the type of stuff Chevron should be putting out, not on our podcast. And he's right. This should have been put on YouTube. You know, it's it bothers me that there are people in our industry that understand the truth, that understand that it's not necessarily aligned with current public perception. And so they're a bit fearful. And I'm not talking about, you know, that you need to be talking about your opinions and politics. I'm talking about just the truth. What he said here is actually the truth. The world economy cannot run without hydrocarbons. And I'm just glad there's somebody in Chevron, especially a senior person, telling the truth to their people. Now, do I wish they would make this public? Yes. In fact, Chevron, if you want to make this public, let Jake and I know, and we'll come record with you, and we can have a great discussion around this. But this is really cool that somebody wrote in and let us know that you know some senior leaderships in one of the super majors understands the reality of what's going on, not what public perception says today in 2020. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a fantastic thing, especially from a company of this size, when there's a whole lot of greenwashing going on, there's a whole lot of trying to, the ESG issues of kind of pressuring some of the bigger companies to their will. And like you said, companies like this are not putting out the kind of content they need. It would be fantastic if a company like Chevron was putting out this kind of content, letting people know that, hey, the world needs oil and gas. And, you know, green energy is an important component of the future. And it's something that we have to pay attention to, but it's not necessarily one or the other. And I think it's, it's both. And so I would, I would love to see them put out something that was not, the only thing I can reference is that one API commercial from like the Super Bowl, like two years <laughs> ago, which really didn't accomplish a whole lot, but 
Anyways, next we've got a question from Chris, who is a senior financial analysis somewhere. He wrote, I just recently found this podcast and it's been a great addition to my library. The information is insightful and it has helped me better understand the global nature of our industry and how we fit in. Keep up the good work. I started my career as a refining engineer, moved into the finance world a few years back. What I've noticed is that while we fit into the energy sector, our company and other publicly traded companies seem to be a financial engine that is funded by our core technical operations. So to me, a lot of what we do comes back to the bottom line and the question of how we are making money for our shareholders and investors. So my question is twofold. So first question is, given that industry is complex and has large revenue streams, we are ripe for activist investors to sweep in and force changes. With your experience in the industry, how has this shaped our current space? In your opinion, has this positively or negatively impacted our industry as a whole over the past 20 years? So let me take a real quick shot at that. So this could be something you probably wouldn't expect me to say. In in some ways, actually in a lot of ways, it's, accept, it's um, affected our industry very positively. When Exxon had the Valdez spill, activists came in, environmental activists came in and forced change that quite frankly was good for the entire industry. It forced change around HSE metrics, it forced change on how we operate, it forced change in the amount of money we invest in cleanup tools and processes and where we store that. So if there's emergency, we can quickly get the right tools and people to their site. We needed that to have happen. So in that case, it's it's helped us. The thing I'm worried about is not the last 20 years, it's the next 20 years uh, where you're seeing activists come in and you're spot on because of the way our business is structured, because it's large, complex, large revenue streams, it's relatively easier for political and financial activists to come in and change our course. And that's what I'm worried about now. You're looking at people not being able to drill, pipelines not being able to build, us not being able to use water, us not being able to dispose and produce water. And all that stuff is being driven by activists that don't understand our industry. And what's happening is you could drive cost up and you could drive cost up to the point that stuff that people can afford now, such as cars or six packs of Budweiser's on the weekend or makeup may get pushed to the point where it's so expensive, the common person can't afford it anymore. And so then you could create that wealth inequality. You, you could make it even worse because you're adding a layer of cost to an industry that is vital to mankind. So I'm, the past 20 years, I actually think a lot of the activism helped us. The future, the next 20 years is what I'm really, really worried about. Second question is, recently, JP Morgan Chase came out to the market stating they will pull financial support for some fossil fuels, which we talked about in the last episode. Mainly, they will not finance the new oil and gas development in the Arctic and will significantly decrease their investment in coal. This is just a small portion of their fossil fuel portfolio, but they are by far the largest fossil fuel lender. But is this a signal of more to come? My question is this. If large financial institutions do begin to pull the support for our industry, where does the space go for its funding needs? So is this a sign of things to come? Yes, there's going to be a lot more of this. I've, over the last year, I've been very, very involved in talking to a lot of the big players, and we're going to see a lot of this. It's a little bit unfortunate. Wall Street is in part to blame, but in, you know, especially the shale industry has also kind of screwed us in a little bit of a way. But where is the money going to go, come from? It, that doesn't mean that all money is completely drying up. There's a ton of money that is waiting on the sidelines to come into this industry and invest, but they're looking for good returns. Okay. And so the fact of the matter is that the shale industry hasn't returned what they said they were going to. 
And so when you do that time and time again, investors get burned. But is there an opportunity to make returns in this industry? Absolutely. And we talked about this in the last episode. In a lot of other countries, you can't necessarily get the same kind of returns that you can get in oil and gas. And so we have a ton of foreign investors. We have a ton of high net worth individuals, a ton of family offices that have no ESG pressure whatsoever. These guys can make decisions completely on their own. And so those are the guys that are going to be getting into the oil and gas industry, but they need to find good investments. And I think that's where the challenge is going to be given the current climate. Yeah. So Chris, so first thing, Oil and Gas Global Network has decided we're not going to invest in the Arctic and we're not going to invest in coal. <laughs> the truth is nobody's invested. In, nobody's drilling the Arctic right now and nobody's investing in coal. So the fact that, that JP Morgan said they weren't doing it doesn't matter because nobody's doing it. Wells Fargo, I think just yesterday came out with a statement saying they're not investing in Arctic drilling. Nobody's investing in Arctic drilling right now. That oil is so expensive. You know, if we tend to, if we go below 50 or $40 a barrel, I mean, it just doesn't make financial sense. All needs to be around $110 a barrel for to make fiscal sense to drill and produce in Arctic. So nobody's drilling there. So the fact that these companies come out and say they're not doing it doesn't matter because nobody's doing it. The other thing I want to, and I agree with Jake 100%, 110% actually, but the other thing is because of technology, you're seeing new ways to invest in our industry. You're seeing, and Jake probably knows these companies, but you're seeing fractional investment companies being set up using tech where, you know, 10 years ago, if Jake and I wanted to invest in some assets in Oklahoma, we had to be able to write a check for $10 million. Well, now we can write a check for 500 bucks and a whole bunch of other people write a check for 500 bucks. And now we've invested in assets in Oklahoma. I think that's going to be a big wave of the future. But the industry's changing upstream in the way we finance projects, not just in upstream, actually the same thing is going on in pipelines right now for some of the same reasons. But the way they used to finance pipeline projects is changing right now as well. Now, everybody gets a little bit worried when things change because human nature is we don't like change. But every time there's change, there's opportunity. So if you're in the industry or if you're thinking about getting in the industry, look at how these changes are happening from a financial investment point of view and figure out where you can make a dollar off that and come in and do it. Absolutely. Next question is from Rogelio. So he's a chemical engineering graduate student who actually won the shirt. Oh, that's right. He sent a picture. I forgot yeah, about that. Yeah. So now he's coming in. He's coming in swinging, Mark. You said, why do you always <laughs> refer to academia with a bad and inefficient connotation? You know, we also do cool stuff for the industry too. I love the show. I'm totally busted on that. When I read this, it's like, you know what I had to think about it for a minute? And it's not that I make fun of academia, but what you'll hear me say a lot, and I'm, and I'm going to try really hard to quit saying it because he's right. There's a lot of great stuff. Not only comes out of academia, the truth is a whole bunch of really awesome stuff come out of students, like haven't even graduated yet. And they come up with the best ideas, the best processes, new techniques, new technologies. The thing I make fun of sometimes, though, is that for a long time, our industry, especially in upstream, has fell in love with the theory, like, oh, we can do this, the academia part of this. And what I've been saying for a long time is like, don't show me academia, show me where somebody's actually really doing it in the field and it makes sense, where the rubber hits the road, where it's executable. But you're absolutely right. I've been saying academia in a slightly negative way, and I got to quit doing that because a lot of great stuff comes out of academia. So my apologies, and I'm working on trying to change the way I talk about that stuff. Last question of the week is from Denise, who's a project manager at Halliburton. Hey, Jake, hey. say her last name. Hebert. I knew you were going to say that. If she's from Louisiana, it's a bear, which and you would never think you would get a bear out of that word. But anyway, I just it's just funny. What's, speaking of that, I, I called Justin Godier, Justin Gaither for like six months and he never corrected me. So <laughs> we got to work on your French. It's it's awful. He writes, hey, guys, love the show so much that sometimes my friends and I will get together and listen at my house while drinking wine. Silly, I know. Here are my questions. I don't know what to say about that. This Good. Is, this is interesting. Sweet. 
I hope we're entertaining, I guess. Uh, So here are my questions. What do you think about the future of podcasting? How large and old companies best use a podcast for their business? What about individuals and their careers? Please keep up the great work. And if you could get back to publishing one show a week that I can make us even happier. (laughs) We've been busted by these from Halliburton while they're drinking wine. Future of podcasting. We're not even out of the national anthem if we're looking at this in terms of innings. Podcasting has has a huge, huge future moving forward. And it's so funny because it's actually been around for what, 11 years now, maybe even a little bit longer. It took a long time to catch on, but once it did, it's absolutely blown up. And we've seen there's a ton of movement in the space that is really just validating the fact that podcasting is becoming a bigger and bigger thing. So the CEO of Spotify was actually, he was quoted as saying, the reason that they're investing so heavily into podcasts is because podcasting and audiobooks and things like that are consuming more people's quote unquote ambient time. So what do you mean by that? It's, it's really a downtime. It's when you're doing the dishes, it's when you're driving, it's, it's maybe when you're working, you know, more and more people are starting to wear, you know, like, you know, headphones or AirPods. Like I have, I have a set of those now and it's like, I feel like I leave them in half the day because I'm either listening to a podcast, I'm listening to an ebook or I'm taking calls on it. So I think the future of podcasting is extremely bright. I think the power of audio is that you can still go about your day and be doing things as opposed to video. It needs really all of your attention. I think video has a bright future as well, but I think podcasting is definitely where it's at. Individuals in the careers, I think it's a, it, it depends. depends on what you do. I think you have to be a little bit interesting <laughs> sometimes or provide some kind of educational tool to people. But I think it's a great way to showcase your expertise and help you stand out amongst other individuals. Yeah, so the future of podcasting is great, and it's interesting. So if you looked at what like Netflix has done lately, they've figured out – so Netflix is not a media company. Netflix is a big data analytics company that happens to get their data from the media that you consume. And so Netflix knows that if you're a 35-year-old male and you're married, you have a household income between $100,000 $150,000 that you like X type of programs. Well, now they're creating those X type of programs in-house, right, because they have the data to know exactly what's going to hit. The old Hollywood way of doing it is you would put out some shows. You would do a pilot. You would see how many people listen. You'd get your Nelson results, and then you would figure out if you wanted to go and make another season of it, which was a big risk, a big financial risk. The new way is these content providers are now figuring out what they want to know ahead of time, and they're monetizing it themselves. They're producing the content themselves without going outside, without going to the Hollywood. And the reason I bring all that up is Apple, depending on who you believe, is between 70 and 80% of all podcast traffic in the world. They are the 800-pound gorilla. And we've had some conversations with them, and I'm firmly convinced they're going down that same route where they're going to get certain creators to create unique content for Apple that will be behind some type of paywall. And so I think the future is great. The one thing I have my eye on is augmented reality because Jake hit the nail on the head. The power of the podcast is that you can do other stuff while you're listening. You can drive, you can wash dishes, you can work out. It's the same thing I do. It's, it's, it's a great way for me to learn while I'm doing something else. I listen to a ton of podcasts. Augmented reality actually has that same potential where you ha- wear the, the Google glasses or you wear the contact lens and you can still function and do other stuff, but learn and consume content. So we have an eye on augmented reality as, as maybe touching podcasting some way in the very near future. But like Jake said, it's only growing. It's only growing bigger. It's something like 7,000 new podcasts a day or a loader on iTunes. It's insane. Next question, how can large and old companies, I wonder who she's talking about, large and old companies, best use a podcast for business? The first place to start is internal communications. You know, if you work for a big company like Halliburton, your PR people and your HR people internally send these 30-slide PowerPoint decks on these seven-page emails telling you what's coming up for next year. And it could be something as simple as how your health benefits are changing. 
why don't you turn that to a podcast? We're actually working with two companies right now, uh, two big oil service companies and helping them stand up their own internal podcast for this exact reason. It's a great way to communicate with your employees. The only thing that's hard about it, it's very easy to download podcasts on iTunes. However, you can't yet separate your internal podcast from public podcasts in iTunes. So you have to create some type of site where your employees can go listen to it. And the key there is to make it as easy as possible for them to download it and listen to it on whatever mobile device they're using. Because if you make people listen to your pod, internal podcast on a desktop or a laptop, it's not going to go anywhere. But that's a great way for a large company to use it is for internal communications. And then once you get comfortable with that and you're okay with it, and you realize the world's not going to end because you have an internal podcast, think about turning it external. Think about using it as a way to educate your current customers and your future customers. Podcasts are great at that. And then what about individuals and their careers? You know, Jake, you and I both have benefited, I mean, honestly, from a career point of view and from a financial point of view by having this podcast and, and our other yep. podcasts. So I think if you have a good story to tell, I think it could benefit your career. And quite frankly, if you work in oil and gas, it's probably not a bad thing for you to have a side gig where you make a little bit of money. And in a podcast, you can do that relatively easy. The more niche your content is, the more niche your expertise it is, the easier it is to monetize that. So I, I think it can help you both your career and as an individual, you know, you get to meet people that you normally wouldn't get to meet. I mean, on some of our shows, we've had some people on the shows that we would have never gotten to meet when I was working for, you know, corporate, you know, but having the podcast allows me to meet these people, interact with them. So I, I think it's a good all the way around. And then I get it. Jake and I, I know we don't always publish a show every week. We're working on it. Just keep your fingers crossed and just drink some more wine. <laughs> All right, guys, that wraps up the questions for this week. So like you heard us talk about with Rogelio, he actually received the the very unique OGGN. It has a, it's a t-shirt. So it has the, what is it called? The patent? The, like the yeah, blue, patent blue, print blue for a pump jack. Yep. On there. And it comes inside a, an official OGGN insulated tumbler. And so at the end of the year, we're going to be drawing each one of these is serialized. And so we're going to be doing a drawing, giving away some grand prizes. So pay attention to that. So just go to the link in the show notes, sign up for that for your chance to win one of those. Let's see what the weekly rig count is doing. We are, we're stagnant. We're at 813. Hasn't really, it's, hasn't gone anywhere. It's the exact same where it was last week. I bet uh, next week it makes a big change. I 100% know it's going to make a big change. <laughs> just on speculation alone. And let me real quick get back to the shirt. So you talk, you heard Jake and I talk about our 200th episode. We're doing something really cool at one big service companies. I'm telling you people, we're going to invite a select few people to come see this in person. And one of the ways we invite people is people have this unique serial number. It won't be the only way, but it's one of the ways. So go register. I'm just putting it out there. Go register for that. Then you heard us talk about the street team. We actually got the coolest swag, Jake. Big shout out to Catherine. She found a designer. She, they designed a shirt for the street team, and it is the coolest freaking shirt. And we're putting some money into it. This is some $7 shirt. But if you join the street team, we ask for an hour's worth of work a week. We don't care where you are in the world. And quite honestly, if you can't do an hour's worth of work, we're okay with that. We know life gets in the way. And you're basically just helping us on social media. So cool swag. You get to join us as part of our press team for in your local area. You get to go to our live events for free all for clicking like and sharing stuff on social media. So that's a pretty good deal. And then if you want to know about all of the events that are going on in the oil and gas industry, plus some of the ones that are private, go sign up for the monthly oil and gas events newsletter. The link's in the show note. And then if you want Jake and I to come speak at your core virus, no, I'm joking. <laughs> if you want Jake and I to come speak at your sales kickoff, marketing kickoff, your university, young professionals club, your 
industry meeting, whatever, let us know. We'll be happy to share the details. I probably should not have made a joke about that. I'm sorry, people. I just find it the overreaction funny. And then while you're online, go ahead and go to the website, give us your email address, and we promise not to spam you. And finally, join the LinkedIn group. It's I don't even know what the number is. It's growing so quick, but it's it's getting really cool. Great content. Everything's moderated by a real person, so no spam out there. Nobody trying to sell you doorknobs or whatever. Damn, this is a long show. We're almost at 40 minutes. You ready to get out of here? Let's go. All right. Remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Hey, everybody. Alex here with the events on deck for the next month. We have some exciting things coming up. Two happy hours, one in Pittsburgh and one in Denver. So the first one will be happening on March 22nd at Bubba's Gourmet Burgers and Beer. This event will be from 4 to 7 and will feature a live recording of Oil & Gas This Week with Jake Corley and Mark LaCour. So be sure to check that out. You can sign up via our social medias. We have an Eventbrite sign up and should be good to go from there. The next event will be a happy hour in Denver at Liberty Oil Field Services on April 2nd. Once again, check our social medias for the Eventbrite sign up and sign up there. As some of our social media followers may know, we are headed to Aberdeen, Scotland the first week of March, in a couple days actually, for DokuruCon, creating high impact sales and energy. Dokuru is excited to launch its very first sales development conference, and OGGN's Mark and Patrick will be hosting a panel and recording a live podcast, so we're really excited to be joining that. The Leaders in Industry Luncheon is on March 11th at the Petroleum Club of Houston, Port of the Future is happening on March 10th and 11th in Houston. Your registration to the Port of the Future conference also allows you access to exclusive events, including TSA Security and Terrorism, Research Showcase, and many more. So be sure to view the agenda and see what they are offering. The Houston Energy Breakfast will be on March 20th at the Norris Conference Center in Houston. The API Energy Houston 3-Gun Chapter will be on March 20th. This event is filling up very quickly, so make sure to get a team in as soon as possible. The BP Energy Outlook 2020 Edition will be on April 21st. It's happening online. And this event is about transitions that will take place to a low-carbon energy system. That's all for this month, everybody. Hope you guys have a good month and check back in next month to see what events we're having. Thanks. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.